Section 19 of On Benefits. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Benefits by Seneca. Translated by Aubrey Stewart. Book 6, Chapters 9 to 22. Chapter 9. In order that I may be grateful, I must wish to do what my benefactor must have wished in order that he might bestow a benefit. Can anything be more unjust than to bear a grudge against a person who may have trodden upon one's foot in a crowd, or splashed one, or pushed one the way which one did not wish to go? Yet, it was by his act that we were injured, and we only refrained from complaining of him because he did not know what he was doing the same reason makes it possible for men to do us good without conferring benefits upon us or to harm us without doing us wrong because it is intention which distinguishes our friends from our enemies how many have been saved from service in the army by sickness some men have been saved from sharing the fall of their house by being brought up upon their recognizances to a court of law by their enemies some have been saved by a shipwreck from falling into the hands of pirates yet we do not feel grateful of such things because chance has no feeling of the service it renders nor are we grateful to our enemy though his lawsuit while it harassed and detained us still saved our lives nothing can be a benefit which does not proceed from a good will and which is not meant as such by the giver if any one does me a service without knowing it i am under no obligation to him should he do so meaning to injure me i shall imitate his conduct chapter ten let us turn our attention to the first of these can you desire me to do anything to express my gratitude to a man who did nothing in order to confer a benefit upon me passing on to the next do you wish me to show my gratitude to such a man and of my own will to return to him what i received from him against his will what am i to say of the third he who meaning to do an injury blunders into bestowing a benefit that you should have wished to confer a benefit upon me is not sufficient to render me grateful but that you should have wished not to do so is enough to set me free from any obligation to you a mere wish does not constitute a benefit just as the best and heartiest wish is not a benefit when fortune prevents it being carried into effect neither is what fortune bestows upon us a benefit unless good wishes preceded it in order to lay me under an obligation you must not merely do me a service but you must do so intentionally chapter eleven clintus makes use of the following example i sent says he two slaves to look for plato and bring him to me from the academy one of them searched through the whole of the colonnade and every other place in which he thought that he was likely to be found and returned home alike weary and unsuccessful the other sat down among the audience of a mountebank close by and while amusing himself in the society of other slaves like a careless vagabond as he was found plato without seeking him as he happened to pass that way we ought says he to praise that slave who as far as lay in his power did what was ordered and we ought to punish the other whose laziness turned out so fortunate it is good will alone which does one real service let us then consider under what conditions it lays us under obligations it is not enough to wish a man well without doing him good 
nor is it enough to do him good without wishing him well. Suppose that someone wished to give me a present, but did not give it. I have his good will, but I do not have his benefit, which consists of subject matter and good will together. I owe nothing to one who wished to lend me money, but did not do so. And in like manner, I shall be the friend of one who wished me, but was not able to bestow a benefit upon me. But I shall not be under any obligation to him. I also shall wish to bestow something upon him, even as he did upon me. But if fortune be more favorable to me than to him, and I succeed in bestowing something upon him, my doing so will be a benefit bestowed upon him, not a repayment out of gratitude for what he did for me. It will become his duty to be grateful to me. I shall have begun the intercharge of benefits. The serious must be counted from my act. Chapter 12. I already understand what you wish to ask. There is no need for you to say anything. Your countenance speaks for you. If anyone does us good, for his own sake, are we, you ask, under an obligation to him? I often hear you complain that there are some things which men make use of themselves, but which they put down to the account of others. I will tell you, my liberalis, but first let me distinguish between the two parts of your question and separate what is fair from what is unfair. It makes a great difference whether anyone bestows a benefit upon us for his own sake, or whether he does it so partly for his own sake and partly for ours. He who looks only to his own interests, and who does us good because he cannot otherwise make a profit for himself, seems to me to be like the farmer who provides winter and summer fodder for his flocks, or like the man who feeds up the captives whom he has brought in order that they may fetch a better price in the slave market, or who cramps and curry combs fat oxen for sale, or like the keeper of a school of arms who takes great pains in exercising and equipping his gladiators. As Clinton says, there is a great difference between benefits and trade. Chapter 13 On the other hand, I am not so unjust as to feel no gratitude to a man, because while helping me, he helped himself also. For I do not insist upon his consulting my interests to the exclusion of his own. Nay, I should prefer that the benefit which I receive may be of even greater advantage to the giver provide that that he thought of us both when giving it and meant to divide it between me and himself even should he possess the larger portion of it still if he admits me to a share if he meant it for both of us i am not only unjust but ungrateful if i do not rejoice in what has benefited me benefiting him also it is the essence of spitefulness to say that nothing can be a benefit which does not cause some inconvenience to the giver as for him who bestows a benefit for his own sake i should say to him you have made use of me and how can you say that you have bestowed a benefit upon me rather than i upon you suppose answers he that i cannot obtain a public office except by ransoming ten citizens out of a great number of captives will you owe me nothing for settling you free from slavery and bondage yet i shall do so for my own sake to this i should answer you do this partly for my sake and partly for your own. It is for your own sake that you ransom captives, but it is for my sake that you ransom me. For to serve your purpose, it would be enough for you to ransom anyone. I am therefore your debtor, not for ransoming me, 
but for choosing me since you might have attained the same result by ransoming someone else instead of me you divide the advantages of the act between yourself and me and you confer upon me a benefit by which both of us profit what you do entirely for my sake is that you choose me in preference to others if therefore you were to be made a praetor for ransoming ten captives and there were only ten of us captives none of us would be under any obligation to you because there is nothing for which you can ask any one of us to give you credit apart from your own advantage i do not regard a benefit jealously and wish it to be given to myself alone but i wish to have a share in it chapter fourteen well then says he suppose that i were to order all your names to be put in a ballot-box and that your name was drawn among those who were to be ransomed would you owe me nothing yes i should owe you something but very little how little i will explain it to you by so doing you do something for my sake in that you grant me the chance of being ransomed i owe to fortune that my name was drawn all i owe to you is that my name could be drawn you have given me the means of obtaining your benefit for the greater part of that benefit i am indebted to fortune that i could be so indebted i owe it to you i shall take no notice whatever of those whose benefits are bestowed in mercenary spirit who do not consider to whom but upon what terms they give whose benefits are entirely selfish suppose that someone sells me corn i cannot live unless i buy it yet i do not owe my life to him because i have bought it i did not consider how essential it was to me and that i could not live without it but how little thanks are due for it since i could have not had it without paying for it and since the merchant who imported it did not consider how much good he would do me but how much he would gain for himself i owe nothing for what i have bought and paid for chapter fifteen according to this reasoning says my opponent you wish to say that you owe nothing to a physician beyond his paltry fee nor to your teacher because you have paid him some money yet these persons are all held very dear and are very much respected in answer to this i should urge that some things are of greater value than the price which we pay for them you buy up a physician life and good health the value of which cannot be estimated in money from a teacher of the liberal sciences you buy the education of a gentleman and mental culture therefore you pay these persons the price not of what they give us but of their trouble in giving it you pay them for devoting their attention to us for disregarding their own affairs to attend to us they receive the price not of their services but of the expenditure of their time yet this may be more truly stated in another way which i will at once lay before you having first pointed out how the above may be confuted our adversary would say if some things are of greater value than the price which we pay for them then though you may have bought them you still owe me something more for them i answer in the first place what does the real value matter since the buyer and the seller have settled the price between them next i did not buy it at its own price but at yours it is you say worth more than its sale price true but it cannot be sold for more the price of everything varies according to the circumstances after you have well praised your wares they are worth only the highest price at which you can sell them a man who buys things cheap is not on that account under any obligation to the seller 
in the next place even if they are worth more there is no generosity in your letting them go for less since the price is settled by custom and the rate of the market not by the uses and powers of the merchandise what would you state to be the proper payment of a man who crosses the seas holding a true course through the midst of waves after the land has sunk out of sight who foresees coming storms and suddenly when no one expects danger orders sails to be furled yards to be lowered and the crew to stand at their posts ready to meet the fury of the unexpected gale and yet the price of such great skill is fully paid for by the passage money at what sum can you estimate the value of a lodging in a wilderness of a shelter in the rain of a bath or fire in cold weather yet i know on what terms i shall be supplied with these when i enter an inn how much the man does for us who props our house when it's about to fall and who with a skill beyond belief suspends in the air a block of building which has begun to crack at the foundation yet we can contract for underpinning at fixed and cheap rate the city wall keeps us safe from our enemies and from sudden inroads of brigands yet it is well known how much a day a smith would earn for erecting towers and scaffoldings footnote see violette le duc's dictionnaire d'architecture articles architecture militaire and orts for the probable meaning of propagnacula to provide for the public safety chapter sixteen i might go on for ever collecting instances to prove that valuable things are sold at a low price what then why is it that i owe something extra both to my physician and to my teacher and that i do not acquit myself of all obligation to them by paying them their fee it is because they pass from physicians and teachers into friends and lay us under obligations not by the skill which they sell to us but by kindly and familiar good will if my physician does no more than feel my pulse and class me among those whom he sees in his daily rounds pointing out what i ought to do or to avoid without any personal interest then i owe him no more than his fee because he views me with the eye not of a friend but of a commander footnote non tamquam amicus videt sed tamquam imperator neither have i any reason for loving my teacher if he has regarded me merely as one of the mass of his scholars and has not thought me worthy of taking especial pains with by myself if he has never fixed his attention upon me and if when he discharged his knowledge on the public i might be said rather to have picked it up than to have learnt it from him what then is our reason for owing them much it is not that what they have sold us is worth more than we paid for but that they have given something to us personally suppose that my physician has spent more consideration upon my case than was professionally necessary that it was for me not for his own credit that he feared that he was not satisfied with pointing out remedies but himself applied them that he sat by my bedside among my anxious friends and came to see me at the crisis of my disorder that no service was too troublesome or too distinguishing for him to perform that he did not hear my grown son moved that among the numbers who called for him i was his favorite case and that he gave the others only so much time as his care of my health permitted him i should feel obliged to such a man 
not as to a physician, but as to a friend. Suppose again that my teacher endured labor and weariness in instructing me, that he thought me something more than is thought by all masters alike, that he roused my better feelings by his encouragement, and that at one time he would raise my spirits by praise, and at another warn me to shake off slothfulness, that he laid his hand, as it were, upon my latent and torpid powers of intellect, and drew them out into the light of the day, that he did not stingily duel out me what he knew, in order that he might be wanted for a longer time, but was eager, if possible, to pour all his learning into me. Then I am ungrateful if I do not love him as much as I love my nearest relatives and my dearest friends. Chapter 17 We give something additional even to those who teach us the meanest traits, if their efforts appear to be extraordinary. We bestow gratuity upon pilots, upon workmen, who deal with the commonest materials and hire themselves out by the day. In the noblest arts, however, those which either preserve or beautify our lives, a man would be ungrateful who thinks he owes the artist no more than he bargained for. Besides this, the teaching of such learning, as we have spoken of, blends minds with mind. Now, when this takes place, both in the case of the physician and of the teacher, the price of his work is paid, but that of his mind remains owing. Chapter 18 Plato once crossed a river, and as the ferryman did not ask him for anything, he supposed that he had let him pass free out of respect, and said that the ferryman had laid Plato under an obligation. Shortly afterwards, seeing the ferryman take one person after another across the river with same pains and without charging anything, Plato declared that the ferryman had not laid him under an obligation. If you wish me to be grateful for what you give, you must not merely give it to me, but show that you mean it specially for me. You cannot make any claim upon one for having given him what you fling away broadcast among the crowd. What then? Shall I owe you nothing for it? Nothing as an individual. I will pay when the rest of the mankind do, what I owe no more than they. Chapter 19 Do you say, inquires my opponent, that he who carries me gratis in a boat across the river Po does not bestow any benefit upon me? I do. He does me some good, but he does not bestow a benefit upon me, for he does it for his own sake, or at any rate not for mine. In short, he himself does not imagine that he is bestowing a benefit upon me, but does it for the credit of the state, or for the neighborhood, or of himself, and expects some return for doing so different from what he would receive from individual passengers. Well, asks my opponent, if the emperor were to grant the franchise to all Gauls, or exemption from taxes to all Spaniards, would each individual of them owe him nothing on that account? Of course he would, but he would be indebted to him, not as having personally received a benefit intended for himself alone, but as a partaker in one conferred upon his nation. He would argue, the emperor had no thought of me at the time when he benefited us all. He did not care to give me the franchise separately. He did not fix his attention upon me. Why then should I be grateful to one who did not have me in his mind when he was thinking of doing what he did? In answer to this, I say that when he thought of doing good to all the goals, he thought of doing good to me also, 
for I was a goal, and he included me under my national, if not under my personal affiliation. In like manner, I should feel grateful to him, not as for a personal, but for a general benefit. Being only one of the people, I should regard the debt of my gratitude as incurred, not by myself, but by my country, and should not pay it myself, but only contribute my share towards doing so. I do not call a man my creditor because he has lent money to my country, nor should I include that money in a schedule of my debts where either a candidate for a public office or a defendant in the courts. Yet I would pay my share towards extinguishing such a debt. Similarly, I deny that I am laid under an obligation by a gift bestowed upon my entire nation, because although the giver gave it to me, yet he did not do so for my sake but gave it without knowing whether he was giving it to me or not. Nevertheless, I should feel that I owed something for the gift, because it did reach me, though not directly. To lay me under an obligation, a thing must be done for my sake alone. Chapter 20 According to this, argues our opponent, you are under no obligation to the sun or the moon, for they do not move for your sake alone. No, but since they move with the object of preserving the balance of the universe, they move for my sake also, seeing that I am a fraction of the universe. Besides our position, and theirs is not the same, for he who does me good in order that he may by my means do good to himself does not bestow a benefit upon me, because he merely makes use of me as an instrument for his own advantage. Whereas the sun and the moon, even if they do us good for their own sakes, still cannot do good to us in order that by our means they may do good to themselves for what is there which we can bestow upon them chapter twenty one i should be sure replies he that the sun and the moon wish to do us good if they were able to refuse to do so but they cannot help moving as they do in short let them stop and discontinue their work See now in how many ways this argument may be refuted. One who cannot refuse to do a thing may nevertheless wish to do it. Indeed, there is no greater proof of a fixed desire to do anything than not to be able to alter one's determination. A good man cannot leave undone what he does, for unless he does it he will not be a good man. Is a good man, then, not able to bestow a benefit because he does what he ought to do, and is not able not to do what he ought to do? Besides this, it makes a difference whether you say, he is not able not to do this, because he is forced to do it, or he is not able to wish not to do it, for if he could not help doing it, then I am not indebted for it to him, but to the person who forced him to do it. If he could not help wishing for it because he had nothing better to wish for, then it is he who forces himself to do it, and in this case the debt which as acting under compulsion he could not claim is due to him as compelling himself. Let the sun and the moon cease to wish to benefit us, says our adversary. I answer. Remember what has been said. Who can be so crazy as to refuse the name of a free will to that which has no danger of ceasing to act, and of adopting the opposite course, since, on the contrary, he whose will is fixed for ever must be ought to wish more earnestly than anyone else. Surely, if he, who may at any moment change his mind, can be said to wish, we must not deny the existence of will in a being whose nature does not admit of change of mind. 
Chapter 22 Well, says he, let them stop, if it is possible. What you say is this, let all those heavenly bodies, placed as they are at vast distances from each other, and arranged to preserve the balance of the universe, leave their appointed posts, let sudden confusion arise, so that constellations may collide with constellations, that the established harmony of all things may be destroyed, and the works of God be shaken into ruin. Let the whole frame of the rapidly moving heavenly bodies abandon in mid-career those movements which we were assured would endure for ages, and let those which now by their regular advance and retreat keep the world at a moderate temperature be instantly consumed by fire, so that instead of the infinite variety of the seasons all may be reduced to one uniform condition let fire rage everywhere followed by dual night and let the bottomless abbeys swallow up all the gods is it worth while to destroy all this merely in order to refute you even though you do not wheel in their courses for your sake though their motion may be due to some earlier and more important cause end of section nineteen recording by hanna naumoska